quick disclaimer before we start, but our interview with Debbie Clinton was actually recorded before Liz Truss resigned as Prime Minister. Leaked Ofsted crib sheets cause a rumble, school meals feel the pinch, and there's a new Prime Minister at number 10. Hello and welcome to episode three of the new Schools and Academy Show podcast. My name is Alex. And I'm Sam. And together we'll be your hosts for this brand new season. Each month we'll bring you a roundup of all the big news affecting the education sector. And along with our network of experts, we'll be looking to break down the stories and shed light on how these developments will impact schools and trusts across the country, all in one bite-sized package. We'd like to thank you all for joining us and we hope you enjoy what we have to offer. Welcome to the Schools and Academy Show podcast. This episode of the Schools and Academy Show podcast is brought to you by Linky Thinks. Linky Thinks' mission is to show that by linking different ways of thinking, we give children the power and freedom to express themselves creatively, academically, and emotionally, something that many adults struggle with too. Linky Thinks online classes and resources are here to ensure that our next generation have a foundation in these skills to carry them through into adulthood. One Linky Thinks resource, the Descriptionary Humanoids Edition, was awarded Best Educational Book at the Education Resources Award 2022, pitted against publishing heavyweights such as Collins and Bloomsbury. Linky Thinks products and resources provide an innovative approach to literacy, vocabulary building, creative writing, mental health, and well-being. Head to linkythinks.com today to see how you can help your child or pupil start linking different ways of thinking. The new term is in full swing, and that much-needed break will allow many of you to get ready for the long slog up to Christmas. It's a long old term and people need to prepare for it in the best way possible. Speaking of preparation, preparing for Ofsted is one of the most daunting things school leaders can experience. By now I'm sure that many of you are aware of the Ofsted Inspections crib sheet leak and have probably even seen them floating around on Twitter at one point or another. For those of you that missed these, these documents are a series of questions and prompts supposed to remind inspectors of what to ask and what to look for. They're organised by topics such as pedagogy, assessment and policy. And there are different sheets for different subjects, for example, primary maths, PSHE, and so on and so forth. Whether it's documents or pipes, leaks always cause an uproar somehow, with many within the sector already calling for Ofsted to publicly release these documents. Some schools already had access to them, while others didn't, which it would be easy to call unfair. However, Ofsted have said that the information within them is readily available already through their published research, videos, blogs, and curriculum roadshow materials. Amanda Spielman, Chief Inspector, stated, Our concern is that releasing these documents separately without the accompanying context and detail, could lead to people misinterpreting their purpose or messages. In particular, we are concerned that schools could use them as simple checklists, leading to increased and unnecessary workload. To shed some light on this story and the other news we'll cover today, we're joined by the former CEO of the Academy Transformation Trust and all-round educational expert, Debbie Clinton. Debbie, thank you for joining us. It's always really great to chat with you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your previous roles within the sector? Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Debbie Clinton. Um, I am currently, rather grandly, a freelance education leadership expert, but have a career in the education sector, which starts off a long time ago as a secondary history teacher. I then moved through various roles in terms of climbing up the hierarchy and became the head of Nunthorpe Academy um, for about 10 years in Middlesbrough. 
um, which was an incredibly exciting part of my professional life where we were outstanding in every single aspect according to Ofsted and various other awards and it was a lovely lovely time. I then left uh, then having been asked to go and join Ofsted as one of the Majesty's inspectors so I crossed to the dark side and joined Ofsted and had had two of the best career years of my life actually with Ofsted. Loved being inspector, I'll talk about that later probably and then I moved on to become the chief exec of the Diverse Academies Learning Partnership, now called the Diverse Academies Trust, based in Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire. Lovely, lovely time there, about three years there. And then I finished my PAYE career, as I always call it, as the chief exec of Academy Transformation Trust, where we did amazing things, actually, and transformed what was, I think the technical term is basket case of a trust into something much more meaningful and um, structurally fit for purpose, uh, including clearing a £4.2 million deficit over a two-year period, which I'm quite proud of. Debbie, this brings us to our first news story, which I think you're probably going to have a fair few opinions on. These leaked documents from Ofsted are causing quite a stir. Indeed. Um, these crib sheets. Yeah. Should Ofsted make these documents available for all? And should there be more transparency in the Ofsted training procedures? Yes. <laughs> in yes. a nutshell. And I'm speaking as a former HMI. I tweeted in this regard at the time. Actually, the crib sheets, as they are called, are of mixed quality, in my view, in terms of subject leadership improvement. But of course, that's not the point, really. The point is, if we believe that inspection is one way in which we improve the nation's education provision, then why would we not share everything that we possibly could, assuming that those crib sheets are, for example, rooted in the Ofsted subject research reviews, and I'm sure they are, then actually, if they are going to give us some of the best cutting edge understanding of subject development, why would we not share them? Particularly in the context of since September 2019, exacerbated by the pandemic, of course, a large number of schools have declined their Ofsted grade by at least one. And actually, primarily in the primary phase where the curriculum demands of the quality of education judgment, the bit that the subjects are in, have been really hitting them hard because, of course, most primary staff are not originally subject specialists. That's the whole point of the primary education system. Uh, so Michael Wilshaw, when he was uh, chief inspector and my then boss, talked about improvement through inspection. So he had a very clear view, which I shared, hence I worked with him, that one must use regulatory frameworks and inspection framework for the force of greater good. And therefore, sharing what we could was part of HMI's business then, actually. Do I think we should share everything? No, no, that would not be appropriate because there are some aspects to inspection. For example, inspecting non-association independent schools that might be illegal schools that, you know, who are operating outside of the current legislative framework. That You can't share stuff around them. That would be the behaviour of the stupid. But actually, things like subject development, crib sheets, I mean, come on, you know, what... <laughs> It's like a secret garden. It's like not sharing the marking scheme with a class that you're teaching GCSE English to. It's absolutely bonkers. It makes absolute sense. Do you think these documents could risk misguiding school leaders? For example, they could lead people down the wrong garden path or in the wrong direction and, and potentially cause leaders to give greater or undue focus to areas that they shouldn't be paying attention to. I think there are two parts to my answer here. 
The first one is that one of the defences against sharing them, one of the arguments, sorry, against sharing them given by HMI through social media was that they worried that sharing any such documents might lead to a change in leadership behaviours. I think that shows an incredible naivety and disrespect simultaneously. The naivety is around the fact that actually do Ofsted inspectors and HMI really think that we don't pay close attention to what they do and say? Because again, as a school leader, as a trust leader, why would you not pay attention to a significant part of the regulatory framework of this country, particularly if you think it's about improvement? And the, the disrespectful dimension is to therefore say that school leaders are some kind of sheep, you know, that just sort of unwittingly follow whatever is put in front of them now you know I don't know many leaders like that I'm sure that there's the odd one in the sector but I've not I've yet to meet them actually school leaders are in charge of school improvement so if they deem the crib sheets to be a key part of the subject improvement agenda then they would use them sensibly and I think you know finally in all of this debacle really is this returning to the point that inspection must be about improvement, which we're all in the business of, aren't we? We're all in the business of making things better for our children and young people and ultimately our society. And good Lord, we need that at the moment, do we not? So actually investing in uh, an approach to inspection and regulation that is about a shared endeavour strikes me as a very sensible way forward. Next up, we've got some news relating to the cost of living crisis that's affecting us all at the moment. Price increases are showing no sign of slowing down, and as we've mentioned before, schools are no exception to the rule. One area where belts are having to be tightened, ironically, is in the meals that schools are looking to serve. According to the LACA, the School Food People, a membership organisation whose members provide around 80% of school catering services in the UK, there has been a 30% rise in food costs. That's huge and has resulted in over 9,000 schools resorting to use more processed foods to cope with the rising costs. What's worse is that the LACA have reported that many of its members will struggle to meet the mandatory food standards without significant change. Schools are now reducing portion sizes or reducing choices in order to work within the dire situation. 76% of members reported that they'd been forced to change their menus and 30% had already made a reduction to the choices available. Now all this news is coming at a time when some pupils are relying on school meals more than ever. We sadly know that in some cases, the meals that pupils eat in school are the only hot meals they're eating, and potentially the only food they're getting as well. Nutritious school meals are incredibly important when it comes to helping children learn. Many leaders, including Conservative grandee and former Secretary of State for Education Michael Gove, have called for all children of parents on universal credit to receive free school meals. I suppose this ties into a wider debate around funding, and all jokes aside about the quality of school meals, what's the impact this is going to have on the well-being of pupils, and actually their ability to learn as well? Well, in a nutshell, massive, Alex. I do a lot of work in schools now, as you probably can imagine. And um, one of the things I always talk to leaders about is if behaviour, children's behaviour, is not quite where it needs to be. In other words, they're not ready for learning and they're not absolutely focused on the lesson. Then stop whatever you're doing. Stop your teaching and your flogging of the dead horse. Take the children back, get the behaviour regulated again and then start your teaching again. There is no point in doing that. And the same premise applies to hungry children and or poorly fed children. So children who nutritionally just aren't getting what they need. I often drive past schools 
at the beginning of the school day as the children are arriving and the amount of red bull cans I see being consumed by these children among other rubbish really really bothers me bothered me as a head bothered me as an HMI and bothers me still so there's no doubt and there's plenty of evidence in all of this I mean you think how you feel if you're starving hungry and you're trying to hold a meeting right it is not difficult to transplant that into children and particularly children who are, for example, experiencing growth spurts in adolescent life in schools who need at least three or four thousand calories a day. Right. So we, we know that 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 the, the implications are going to be profound. And I think I'm writing saying the Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, has talked about this at some length recently and the, the need to really be clear on um, how, we, how we move in this regard. But there is no doubt, I see it in my working life, the implications for children of not being fed at all or fed poorly and learning. It's just not uh, OK. That's really interesting. So since COVID, we've seen a change in the roles of schools, you know, supporting some of the most vulnerable in society, for example, referrals to food banks. Or I was talking to one practitioner the other day whose school provides a minibus to take parents to a local food bank. Do you see schools stepping in and subsidising meals? And what measures can schools take to support their pupils in having access to, you know, wholesome nutritional food? I feel very torn when I'm answering a question of this nature because I didn't set out as an education professional to become a quasi social worker or health visitor or pretend medic or pretend nutritionist. And it does concern me that this is not a particularly political statement either, actually, because it's, you know, all governments are probably guilty of this. But over the last 20 years, we've seen a real widening of the responsibilities of schools. Now, the reasons for that are, are, are complex and, and difficult, which range from relative cuts in other services in, in our society all the way through to perhaps how we see the function of schools in our society, which is not entirely a bad thing. You're know, looking at the whole child and the holistic nature of education. So these questions are never easy for me to answer because I, I kind of kick against the fact that I think my primary duty is to ensure that teaching and learning delivers really good educational outcomes for young people and diverting the many senior teams I've worked with into what I call the adiaphora of education, the, the stuff around it, is by definition a distraction from the core business, right? So it's always very difficult. However, in the absence of apparently anybody else worrying about this, um, I guess head teachers, chief execs, senior education directors, local authority directors of children's services, we are having these conversations all the time and therefore how we choose to use our budgets is a really important question and I'm ignoring the budget pressures at the moment that's a sort of separate debate so I do know a number of chief execs now that are specifically diverting their their funding into school meals funding that is not then going into educational standards work the argument they're giving and their trustees are supporting them in this the argument they're giving is a bit like my argument when we first began this conversation. What is the point of chucking high quality lessons at starving children? So we need to get the food right and then deliver the high quality lessons. So I do get that. Do I think it's the right direction of travel? I think any government should be ashamed that head teachers and senior leaders feel they've got to do this. But I think do it, they will, because they're interested in the whole child right so we've saved the best news for you till last this week 
It's been nearly impossible to ignore the events taking place in and around Westminster over the last couple months. In the latest twist of the tale, Rishi Sunak has won the Conservative leadership race to become the third Prime Minister in seven weeks. With him, he brings a new Secretary of State for Education, Gillian Keegan, who returns to the Department for Education after a stint in 2020 and 2021 as Minister for Apprenticeships and Skills. That means we have our fifth Secretary of State for Education in just the last year. With this many shake-ups, it makes sense why we haven't heard any new consistent direction. And until we get any new concrete information, it would make sense that the plan is to stay the course outlined in the white paper and the Senate review. Debbie, what does this lack of policy update tell us about the government? I'm always wary of making sort of political statements because I just I just think that you can so easily in, in any sector, including education, get kind of dragged into sort of almost binary discussions about you know, either they're a good government or they're a bad government or, you know, or whatever. And I find that deeply uncomfortable. What is, though, for me particularly uncomfortable is the absolute vacuum and silence from the DfE at the moment. I think that that's not acceptable in the absence of very, very specific policy direction. And actually, I think a remarkably quiet new Secretary of State, apart from the interesting Tory party conference comments, which maybe we'll come to, but it really bothers me because what happens then is that, and you see it in Twitter in particular, other voices become too loud and it's just not, it's just not helpful. So I'm, I'm very sad that the, the current uh, crisis, and it is, you know, we all know it's a crisis, the current crisis would appear to be delaying even further specific policy direction when the white paper and to a lesser degree the green paper provide a quite specific direction of travel for the education system. Brill, thank you for that. A bit of direction would be helpful here. Not only are schools' budgets getting tighter, schools are supporting their communities in new ways. We've still got that loss of learning from COVID to address. Both staff and parents are feeling the rise in prices. So there's a lot affecting the sector in a broader sense. What does this dearth of communication actually mean for the education sector? Again, I always feel... Because I, I think, you know, because you can probably imagine, Alex, I wasn't the kind of leader that sort of sat at my desk waiting for the DFP to tell me what to do. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, not um, I don't I don't know many leaders that do do that, you know, sort of head teachers and, and chief execs are sort of famously pragmatic people who just kind of crack on with the job that they've got to do and to serve their communities. So please don't misunderstand me that the... The vacuum in policy, the, the silence, sorry, in policy direction does not mean that people aren't just getting on with it. Of course they are. My concern is that in that vacuum creeps lots of other noise that's just not helpful and quite distracting. I, I do think, though, that... So, for example, if we think about some of the detail of the schools bill, the white paper, there was some lovely work in that bill around defining what is a strong multi-academy trust. So... We know that the government, this government, which is 12 years old and not, you know, three weeks or whatever, this government set a very clear set of parameters around defining a strong school trust and their desire to see every single uh, state school part of a multi-academy trust by 2030. 
which you know is a relatively short time in education but probably is a direction of travel that I support and in those definitions in that work accompanied by for example very specific changes to the regional schools commissioners job descriptions as the new regional directors along with I think a really good appointment of a new director general in John Edwards who's always impressed me there's a real clarity right going on within that team and that that new boss but yet I don't see any of that being talked about at kind of policy national level. So I've no doubt that John, the regional directors, the ESFA, they'll all be beavering away as civil servants and, and doing their usually uh, very strong work. But actually the rudderlessness nature of how this feels at the moment is, is not helpful. And, and the, the, the real risk is that the sector then is not engaging in really strong rope. My networks are because that's who I, you know, who I roll with, but they're not engaging in, for example, conversations around, well, okay, then let's take those strong trust criteria as defined by the DfE and let's plot our trust, our, our academy trust's improvement journey around those strong trust criteria, particularly if we want to grow. So how do we evidence, how do we evaluate where we're at against those criteria? And therefore, are we going to be part of the growth club or the merger and acquisitions club or the closure club, you know? Um, and it's those sorts of debates that I worry might not be going on because people are just really busy, but also because there's no real clarity from the centre around what we need to be focused on, focusing on, sorry, strategically. Thank you for that insight. Now, these aren't the only news stories to have made the press this month. And as promised, we have a roundup of the other issues to have made the headlines. So this story is one that I feel we're probably going to be hearing about for a very long time. And it comes to us from Cosmo. For those of you who come to us for our fashion advice, I'm really sorry to disappoint you, but what we're talking about is the COVID Social Mobility and Opportunity Study, which is produced by the Sutton Trust in UCL. The study found that more than a third of state school pupils felt that they've lost learning due to COVID and have fallen behind their classmates, with only around 15% of students from the independent sector feeling the same way. What is more, half of the 16 and 17-year-olds surveyed reported that they felt less motivated to study. 45% said that they felt they were unable to catch up. This is not helped by the fact that the implementation of the national tutoring programme seems to have been sporadic at best, with just 27% of the year 11s accessing tutoring sessions. One approach that's been used to address the learning loss is the use of phonics programmes. And a recent report from the Educational Endowment Fund has called into question the effectiveness of the Ruth Miskin Read Write Inc. and Fresh Start schemes. The study found that children aged 4 to 9 who engaged with the Read Write Inc. programme on a daily basis made, just on average, a month's progress in reading. However, older pupils who undertook the Fresh Start catch-up scheme with daily interventions made two months less progress than their peers. These schemes don't come cheap either, and it costs roughly £20,000 per school to run them. With a cost like that, you can expect there's going to be some debate over the results of the study, and there has been. Large numbers of pupils were omitted from the final data sets because of issues like absenteeism, and there's a belief from some that the study may have been too heavily weighted with disadvantaged pupils which skewed the results, especially seeing as over a third of the schools who were offered the intervention didn't deliver it at all. The trustworthiness of the report has been called into question by Professor Stephen Gorard, Director of the Durham University Evidence Centre for Education. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for today. We'd like to thank our guest Debbie Clinton again for joining us. Debbie, do you have anything you'd like to say before we go? 
Um, hey, listeners, I hope you found this interesting and that I did behave myself to, to you know, not I behaved quite well, I hope. I uh, hope you found it useful. Hope you found it interesting. And it's been a delight to, to speak to you. Thank you very much. And goodbye from me. And of course, thanks to all of you for joining us today. Hopefully you'll join us again next month for our special episode, which we'll be recording live at the Schools Academy Show Birmingham, which if you're not already registered to attend, First of all, what are you doing? But second of all, make sure you do. It's free to attend and it's co-located with the EdTech Summit at the NEC Birmingham on November 17th. There you'll be able to hear sector leaders from education discuss all the biggest topics. We hope to see you there. However, if you can't wait until then though, make sure that you're following the Schools and Academy show on Twitter at SAA underscore show for frequent updates. And also check out our LinkedIn page. Links will be in the description of the episode. And until then, we'll see you next time. This episode was produced and edited by Alessandro Bilotta, Sam Powell and Alex Wallace. Oh, didn't expect to see you there, but I guess if you followed me this far, you must want more content. So here's a little extra snippet from our interview that couldn't make the episode. Enjoy. And if you wouldn't mind, show yourself out, please. With these crib sheets being leaked, what can we learn about Ofsted and what inspectors are looking for? For example, what insights does this give us about Ofsted, which we might previously not have known? I was saddened by the response of Ofsted, the official response, because I think, I, I, you know, I repeat that as a serving HMI, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that I tried to do good as I as I went and part of our workforce mantra then was that we did good as we go you know that that was the whole point I mean in theory HMIs are the creme de la creme of school improvers right they really know what they're doing and um, that response disappointed me I think a further dimension to all of this is of course that the quality of education judgment in which these subject crib sheets would sit is a qualifying judgment, right? So your whole inspection, you know, either succeeds or fails with regard to that particular judgment. So the the high stakes nature of it, you know, it does not escape anybody in the sector. And I've already mentioned the fact that a number of schools have come a cropper with regard to the quality of education judgment dimension. So I think I think my my overall summation on that question would be that I'd like the chief inspector and her senior exec team to to really think about, just to revisit the raison d'etre of inspection and regulation. And it's not, it's not for one minute that, you know, I've gone native or something mad, you know, that I don't any longer believe in regulation inspection. I categorically believe in inspection and regulation. Blimey, I worked in a, in a profession without any of it in my early days, and it was absolutely wild west out there. Um, but, but... I repeat, if HMI particularly and OI and OIs, Austin inspectors, the 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 the, uh, the other part of the workforce, if these people really know about school improvement, then culturally, surely sharing has got to be the way to go.